Today's scripture comes from Luke 19:28-40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let me pray for us. Lord God, open our eyes now to see wondrous things in your word. Open our eyes to see you and to see ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the team here, and it's my joy to open up God's Word with you this morning. Just one administrative thing. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have a physical Bible with you, we've got Bibles at one of the two tables at the back. You can just go back and grab one of those, and you can refer to it as we go along. So, as John mentioned just now, today is Palm Sunday, the day we remember the joy and praise of the crowds who welcomed Jesus with shouts and songs as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. That's how they welcomed Jesus, but that's not how many of us relate to Jesus today, is it? Think about it this way. In this past week, how much time did you spend praising God? in your prayer life, in, your, in, in singing of songs, declaring His greatness and His goodness, expressing your joy and gratitude for Him. When we sang the songs this morning, for how many of us did the, did the words just feel a little bit hollow? You see, all of us either do, have, or will struggle with, with praising God. Palm Sunday is a day we should be joining the crowds in praising Him, but it's a struggle for many of us, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. What does it mean to praise God? We're going to look at it in three ways. Jesus is the King worthy of praise. He's the King anyone can praise, and He's the King everyone will praise. I'm going to say that again. Jesus is the King worthy of praise, the King anyone can praise, and the King everyone will praise. So to our first point, Jesus is the King worthy of praise. When the Gospel of Luke, Luke was a doctor and close associate of Jesus who wrote the Gospel of Luke um, that, that we read through, part of which we read through today, which is an account of Jesus' time on earth. And our passage for today marks a critical point in Luke's account as we move towards the climax of Jesus' life. We're in chapter 19 this morning, but since all the way back in chapter 9, Jesus has been on a one-way journey to Jerusalem, the place where he says everything is going to happen. Look at 18 verse 31 with me. 
And taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. When Jesus says the Son of Man, he's referring to himself. It's a way that he referred to himself. And so the tension and excitement in the story has been building and building and building as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, where everything is going to happen. But as Jesus enters Jerusalem, before anything has a chance to happen, Luke wants us to be clear about who Jesus is. He does this by emphasizing details that, that echo Old Testament prophecies and passages that were written thousands of years beforehand. So let's take some time to look at three of them that Luke is echoing in our passage. The first is from Zechariah 9 verse 9. A prophecy about a promised one from God, a messianic king, which just means an anointed king who will come to establish universal peace and worldwide dominion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then we have Psalm 118, which is a psalm celebrating the entry of a king, of the king, and thanking God for saving his people. Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. The word Hosanna that we were singing just now is means, save us, we pray, O Lord, is literally from this verse. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then 2 Kings chapter 9, which is a passage that talks about, that describes how a king is being crowned. From verse 12, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Some of us noticed it already, didn't we? Even as we read these Old Testament passages, there are echoes, clear echoes of these passages written thousands of years before in our passage that we read this morning. From Jesus riding in on a donkey, to the crowd saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, to even putting cloaks and garments on the floor. Luke wants us to know, he, he captures these details for us. He puts a spotlight on these details because he wants us to see how these are echoes of all these passages and prophecies written thousands of years before. He does this because he wants the readers to know who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who all these passages and prophecies were pointing to. See, Jesus is the promised one, the one come to bring salvation for the whole earth, the one, the only one, truly worthy of praise. You see, just as the crowds responded to Jesus with shouts of joy and praise, we are to respond to Jesus with shouts of joy and praise. Because He is the one who came not just to save them, but the one who's come to save all of us. But many of us struggle. Christ, the first step to praising God is to meditate on His greatness, to remember who He is and what He has done. He is worthy of praise. One reason 
not the only reason, but one major reason we struggle to praise God is when we struggle to see Him as worthy of praise. When, when we shrink our concept of God, when, when we have too small a view of Him. Jai Packer, in the book Knowing God, puts it this way, but the greatness of God is knowledge which Christians today largely lack. This is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. I love the way he puts it. We are modern people, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, of themselves, have as a rule small thoughts of God. When the person in church, let alone the person on the street, uses the word God, the thought is rarely of divine majesty. See, the truth is there is so much about God that is worthy of praise. His divine majesty, His goodness, His wisdom, His trustworthiness. This morning, and in fact this week, as we lead up to Good Friday and Easter, we're going to focus on the most supreme expression of all that is good and majestic and praiseworthy about God, His self-sacrifice on the cross. His self-sacrifice for the salvation of all. That in the fullness of time, God sent His Son to die on behalf of His people, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve so that we might have the life that we don't deserve, a life enjoying His goodness and divine majesty. See, God, if you want to know what God is like, God's character, His divine majesty, is most supremely revealed in His Son, Jesus. And in what Jesus did in the cross for all of us. We tend to focus so much on Good Friday and Easter, and they are really important. They are days for us to remember that Jesus died and rose from the dead. But these events are only significant if we understand who it is, who it was that died and rose again. Because Jesus wasn't just a man, He's fully God and fully man. We can't appreciate Good Friday and Easter without Palm Sunday. And the significance of Palm Sunday is this, Jesus is the King worthy of our praise. He's not just our King, He's our gentle and humble King who chose to ride in on a humble donkey rather than a triumphant war horse of all the animals He chose. The one who gave up His rights who gave up his life so that we might live, so that anyone can take hold of his gift of salvation. Which is our second point for this morning. Jesus is the king anyone can praise. So an important thing to know when, when reading narrative, when reading these stories in the Bible, is that the, the authors give us clues on how to read these passages. The clues come in the passages that come before and after and that's, how it's, that's what's happening here. The passages that come before and after Jesus' triumphal entry are really important, us, important for us to understand how Luke wants us to make of, these, of what Jesus is doing. So let's spend some time walking through them. We start with 18 verse 35 and Jesus' healing of a blind beggar. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. A blind beggar in Jesus' time was at the very bottom rung of society. 
seen by everyone else as less than everyone else, as expendable, just a waste of space and embarrassment, a drain on everyone, forced to live off the charity of everyone else. We can see these attitudes reflected in the way the crowd tried to silence him. Look from verse 36. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, rebuked is just another word for scolded him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It's such a remarkable twist in the story, isn't it? Everyone else, when they saw Jesus, they saw a man. A man who could do miracles. Perhaps a, a great teacher, perhaps even a prophet, but just a man. And it's, and it's so wonderful that the only one who is physically blind is the only one who can see who Jesus really is. In the whole crowd, he, the blind beggar, is the one with unparalleled insight. He is the only one who sees Jesus for who he really is. By calling Jesus the son of David, he is recognizing that Jesus isn't just a man, he's the God-man. The king God promised would come from the line of David who would come to establish his kingdom of universal peace and worldwide dominion, the only one truly worthy of our praise. And the blind beggar doesn't just see Jesus for who he is. He sees himself for who he is. He sees that he's a no one. He has nothing, absolutely nothing. He has no power, no privilege, no possessions, no friends, no family. He doesn't even have a name in this story. He sees that he has absolutely nothing to bring to Jesus. He cries out, have mercy on me because he has nothing to offer Jesus except this, complete dependence on Jesus' mercy. But that's precisely all he needs, isn't it? <laughs> and see how our beautiful Savior responds. In verse 39, And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. It ends with praise, but it starts with faith. Faith is completely depending on God's will and ability to save all of us. We see what Jesus told the beggar, didn't don't we? He heals the beggar precisely because the beggar realizes he has absolutely nothing to offer Jesus. And I wonder how many of us need to hear that this morning. The key to faith in God is realizing that we have nothing, nothing of value to buy friendship or favor from our Savior. We can't earn our salvation. We are completely dependent on His mercy. But praise God, His mercy is enough. 
His mercy is more than enough. As we continue the story, Jesus continues on his way towards Jerusalem and he enters Jericho, which is just 20 kilometers away. 19 verse 1, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. The story moves from the beggar on the street to the millionaire in his penthouse. From literally from rags to riches. And on the surface, rich Zacchaeus could not seem more different from the blind beggar on the street. But Luke's point is this under the surface, they are not so different. See, Zacchaeus was rich, but his riches had come at the expense of everything else. To be a tax collector meant to work for the Romans, and the Jews hated the Romans. They saw the Romans as foreign occupiers of the land that rightfully belonged to the Jews. And so the Jews hated the Romans, and they hated the tax collectors who, had be- who they saw as betraying them by work collaborating with the enemy. And not only did the tax collectors betray their own people by working for the Roman occupiers, they often abused their power by taking more than they needed to lining their pockets with the hard-earned money of their own people. And Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus was rich, but his riches had come at the cost of everything else. See, towards the blind beggar, people felt indifference, possibly even pity. But towards Zacchaeus would not have been indifference, but almost universal hatred. The blind beggar was an outcast because of his circumstance, but Zacchaeus, for Zacchaeus, it was a choice. He had chosen to get ahead at the expense of his own people by betraying his own people. He was the kind of person that everyone agreed to hate. Who everyone agreed was beyond redemption. You see, he was not just small in height. He was small in status, in reputation, small in the eyes of everyone else. Almost universally hated by everyone. Some commentators even suggest that on account of their hatred for him, the the, the crowds were intentionally blocking him, preventing him from seeing Jesus. And so we go back to the story. Verse 4, so Zacchaeus ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He had gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded, which means cheated, anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. means four times what he took, he will return. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. We see it, don't we? Like the beggar, Zacchaeus sees Jesus for who he really is. And he sees himself for who he really is. That's why he responds the way he does to Jesus. 
See, he received Jesus with joy because he can't believe that Jesus, someone like Jesus would spend time with someone like him. <laughs> he sees that even though he has all the money in the world, like the blind beggar, he's actually bankrupt. He has nothing that he can use to buy Jesus' friendship or favour. He too has nothing to bring to Jesus except a complete dependence on Jesus' mercy. In seeing Jesus for who Jesus really is, the Zacchaeus sees himself for who he really is. He recognises that he is a sinner who has done wrong and so he responds with repentance. Talk about a complete change. He changes his life on the spot to live a life of submission and sacrifice for Jesus' sake. The order here is really important. We, we cannot mix it up. He didn't compensate his victims in order to earn friendship with Jesus. He compensates his victims because he's become a friend of Jesus. Because that's what friendship with Jesus does. Once we are friends with Jesus, we want nothing more than to do whatever we need to do, to give up everything and anything just to please our Saviour. Christ City, do you feel like the blind beggar? Do you feel invisible? Like a nobody? Like a victim of circumstances that have left you a drain on others, a burden on other people, someone that others tolerate rather than want to be with? Or perhaps you relate more to Zacchaeus. Perhaps you've gotten ahead at the expense of everything else. Perhaps you've done something horrible and you don't know how you or anyone can forgive or redeem you. Perhaps you feel small or you wish that you can become so small that no one sees you. Christ City, there is grace for all of us. Jesus is the King that anyone, anyone can praise. Look at verse 10. It summarizes Jesus' mission on earth. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is one of those verses that summarizes the whole of Luke's gospel. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The message of the gospel is this, that we are all lost without God. You see, under the surface, we are all the same. None of us have any anything of value to bring. None of us can buy Jesus' friendship or favour. None of us can earn our salvation. All of us have done horrible things that deserve condemnation. All of us need the gospel, and there is grace sufficient for all of us. We need to see who God is and what He has done. We need to see ourselves for who we are and what we have done, but that's not all. That's not the end of the gospel. 
See, for all of us who have put our faith in Christ, who have accepted His sacrifice on our behalf and live with Him as our Lord and King, we no longer live life seeing ourselves based on how we see ourselves or how others see ourselves. No, Jesus has freed us, so we live based on how He sees us. Don't live based on how you see yourself or how others see you. Live based on the love and compassion that Jesus has for you when He sees you. Live into the identity that we have in Christ. Writer Tim Keller puts it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and more accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel is this, you are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. Christ City, do you see it? The root of all praise is the gospel. We praise God for who He is and what He has done. We praise God because of who we were apart from Him, and we praise Him because of who we are now in Christ. You can't manufacture praise You have to taste and see that the Lord is good. Praise is a response and it's personal. Jesus isn't just the Savior King, He's our Savior King. He's the King who died for me and for you, who came to seek and to save the lost. Take this message of hope this morning, Christ City. But even as some of us need this message of hope, some of us need a message of warning. You see, in each of the stories that we've gone through so far, we've got those who respond not with praise, but with grumbling and rebuke and scolding and overwhelming judgmentalism and negativity. With the blind beggar, there were those who who, who rebuked, who scolded him and told him to be silent. With Zacchaeus, there were those who grumbled and complained that Jesus was the guest of a man who was a sinner. When Jesus rode in on a donkey, there were those who went up to Jesus afterwards and said, stop your disciples from praising you. Why are they praising you? You see, there are those who look down on the suffering of others. There are those who spend their time pointing out the sin in others. And there are those who try to deny that Jesus is worthy of praise. There is a way to be mistaken in the way we view Jesus and ourselves. There is a way like the Pharisees to think we know everything there is to know about God, to go go through the motions of appearing religious, even for other people to look at us and say, look how religious they are, look how holy they are, and still be utterly blind to who God is and how much we need Him. That's why after Jesus enters Jerusalem, From verse 41, he cries over Jerusalem. And then he goes into the temple and he just turns it upside down because the people in the temple, even though they seem like they were religious, 
They had gotten it completely wrong. They were blind to, to who God was and how much they and everyone else needed Him. And so while some of us today need the message of hope and encouragement, let's be honest, some of us need this message of reminder and warning. Do we respond to God? Is our interaction with God characterized by nothing but grumbling and complaining and condemning others? Do we see ourselves as entitled to salvation? Or do we respond with joy and praise like we can't believe that someone like him would, would spend time with someone like us? Do we see God for who He truly is? Do we see ourselves or who we are apart from God? Do we see how we, like the blind beggar, like Zacchaeus, are completely dependent on God's mercy? Jesus is the King anyone can praise, but until we see who God is, until we, we see that we are completely dependent on His mercy, we will grumble instead of praise. We will react with condemnation instead of joy. But we need to clarify something here, don't we? Our takeaway from this text should never be to simply try harder. The point is not to beat ourselves up until we see Jesus for who He is, until we see ourselves for who we are. The point is not to go into this spiral of negative self-esteem. That's not what's happening here. That's not the point because that's not possible. You can't open your own eyes. Only God can. Only God can open our eyes to see Him as we should and to see ourselves as we should. And you know what? That's why Jesus came. We are blind without our Savior. And that's why Jesus came, to open our eyes. Jesus is the only one who ever lived who rightly saw who God was. He is the only one who ever lived who saw himself for who he was, the Son of God. He was the only one who ever lived who deserved, who had the right to be loved and accepted by God. And yet, because of how Jesus sees all of us, with eyes of love and compassion, he gave up his rights. He came down to earth to go to the cross where he was rejected by God so that our eyes might be opened, so that we might see God for who he is, so that we may see ourselves for who we are and we may see Jesus, that we may be loved and accepted by God. That's why Jesus is the king worthy of praise. He died so that all of us, so that anyone can pray Praise Him. And lastly, He's the King everyone will praise. Verses 11 to 27 form a parable that connects our two stories that we've just gone through with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Verse 11 gives us the context. As they heard these things, He, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because He was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You see, Jesus is the long-awaited king that God had promised that people had been waiting for for literally thousands of years. 
Many thought that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was going to fully establish the new promised kingdom of God immediately and completely. To bring about the kingdom of universal peace and complete dominion. They expected God to work on their timeline and not his. And it's so often the same with us, isn't it? We look at what the Bible says and we look at ourselves and the world around us and it's so easy to get discouraged. There are days, weeks, months, years when we struggle to praise God because the fog of struggle and sin have clouded our view of His goodness and majesty. There are things that happen that cause us to really question, is God worthy of praise? There are days when there's a huge disconnect between the person God says we are and the person we see in the mirror. Take encouragement from this parable. To live according to God's timeline and to trust in His promises rather than our own timeline. We won't go into details. We can read the whole parable later on your own, but I'm going to summarize the point of the parable, which is this. These days don't, won't last because Jesus will come back again and He calls us to persevere and be faithful. See, until Jesus comes back again, we live in the now and not yet. Because Jesus' death and resurrection started His rule as King, but this kingdom is not yet fully established and will only be fully established when He comes back again. And so as we live in this period of the now and not yet, trusting in God's timeline and aligning our expectations with His promises, Jesus calls us to live in light of His return, living a life of faith, confident in His promises for the future and faithful in the tasks He has given us for today. The key to all of this is to keep our eyes on the cross, to keep our eyes on what and who our eyes have been opened to see. Because the cross reminds us that Jesus is the King worthy of praise. The cross enables anyone to praise Him and it assures us that one day everyone will praise Him. So this side of eternity, whenever we praise Him, we're declaring to ourselves and to each other that one day it won't be just us in this room. There'll be everyone from all of time praising Him for eternity, our King worthy of our praise.